Welcome to the Social Policy Connections audio podcast. The following podcast features a lecture delivered by Kaz Coleman. Kaz drew from the findings of a recently published research project, Australia's Hidden Homeless, to discuss alternatives to current ways of receiving asylum seekers. The talk was presented to Social Policy Connections on Thursday, August the 12th at the Study Centre of Yarra Theological Union. Kaz Coleman is Director of the Hotham Mission Asylum Seeker Project, a Melbourne-based agency working with asylum seekers living in the community. Kaz has worked in the asylum and refugee sector for 10 years and has an academic background in theology. In 2009, Kaz was appointed to the Council for Immigration Services and Status Resolution, advising the Federal Minister for Immigration, Senator Chris Evans, on asylum issues in Australia. If you would like to attend one of our events, please refer to our website www.socialpolicyconnections.com.au. Please feel free to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or via an RSS feed located on our website's homepage, as we will be publishing podcasts regularly, free of charge. And now, Kaz Coleman. Thanks, Bruce, very much for the welcome. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, normally I do uh, like to speak a little more freely and and off the cuff, but uh, it has been a busy week. So forgive me if if I'm scripted a little tonight. Um, Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land and pay my respects to the elders, both past and present. It is enormously disappointing that asylum issues have become a key election um, issue in 2010. Uh, There's an awful sense of deja vu as we witness more and more people held in detention centres and talk of offshore processing in either Nauru or perhaps East Timor. For those of us who thought we'd achieved more in changing attitudes on asylum seeker issues, we were wrong. There's still a long way to go if we want to see a greater respect of human rights for asylum seekers in Australia, and polls on asylum seeker issues reflect this. However, I do believe that whilst there is a lot of work to do, there are possibilities that lie ahead that can achieve change. In exploring some of these possibilities, I want to focus this evening on uh, a couple of issues, one being the bipartisan policy of mandatory detention, the need for a regional protection framework and the future for community care options or what we hope will be an expansion of community care options in Australia. I think just briefly it's important to take stock of what the picture is in Australia at the moment. Rather than being swamped by asylum seekers, we're witnessing the challenges that many other countries around the world do with irregular migration. Internationally, refugees and asylum seekers account for only a small proportion of global movement of people. However, there are at the moment approximately 34 million people of concern to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. For Australia, the rate of population growth through permanent migration and natural increases in in birth, uh, taking into account death also, far exceeds the 13,750 refugee and humanitarian entrants that settle in Australia each year. 
of those who arrive seeking protection in Australia. Approximately, and the figures do change, around 50% at the moment will need to return home. They won't be recognised as refugees under the International Convention and they will need to return. So whilst we're not being swamped, it's probably fair to say that we are experiencing a major wave of boat arrivals, as we have done so in various times historically over the past 30 years. One of the key challenges for Australia, and something I want to focus on initially, is what we do with this wave of people when they arrive here. So often at the moment the debate focuses on stopping the boats or turning them around or finding another location for them to be processed. And I am concerned that in focusing solely on the way asylum seekers come to Australia, we are almost creating a complacency about the growing number of people in detention and who may well remain there for extended periods of time. For some time now, Australia has had a bipartisan uh, position on mandatory detention. It's not surprising then that the numbers of people in detention in Australia is a growing concern. The latest public figures that were released on June the 25th of this year, so we are in August and uh, taking into account that there will be, as we know, an increase in this number. There were, just, uh, there were 2,454 people on Christmas Island and a further 1,662 people on the mainland. So that's 4,115 people in detention in Australia, too many of whom are children and unaccompanied minors. Estimates of the budgetary uh, figures for uh, managing Christmas Island over the next three years would suggest that this is costing us close to $500 million per year. With a bipartisan policy on mandatory detention, this picture is inevitable, but it's a deeply disturbing one. And I want to be clear that the disturbing picture for me is not because the numbers have increased and the expenditure has skyrocketed, but because it is unusual in a global context, it's unnecessary, and perhaps more compelling, the UN Human Rights Committee has consistently found that the mandatory detention regime breaches basic human rights and standards. So let's compare those statistics of detention to those asylum seekers living in the community. We estimate there's around 8,000 to 10,000 asylum seekers living in the community who have not yet had their protection application or humanitarian claim determined. A majority live with family, friends or secured work and are living independently a smaller number have complex vulnerabilities and require more intensive support. Of this vulnerable group, about half receive support from a government-funded program and about half are left in either destitution or homelessness or are left for agencies such as ours uh, to care for them without government funding. The estimates from the budget in 2009 to 2010 where the budget set community care um, pricing would suggest that this model of community care is costing us $20 million per year. Now before I again contrast those figures, um, I want to state that it's in the opinion of the Hoffman Mission Asylum Seeker Project and many other agencies in the sector that the community care budget is not enough. Um, the work that the Asylum Seeker Project undertakes uh, with no, government, uh, no federal government funding and a small amount of state government funding 
uh, is for asylum seekers who may be eligible for the government-funded uh, uh, programs, but they're not large enough for them to be able to uh, access them. I also want to acknowledge, and something I'm going to talk about a bit later, is that housing isn't included in those community care models. So I want to conservatively suggest that if we were to triple the community care budget, and let's take it up to $60,000 per year, um, 60, sorry, $60 million per year, um, and come back to that comparison, 4,116 people in detention at the cost of $500 million per year, which is effectively $121,500 per person per year. Then we look at the community figures, eight to 10,000 people living in the community at a cost of $60 million per year. That's $6,000 per person per year. Bearing in mind I've tripled this figure, so it's actually 2,000 that we're paying at the moment. Given this financial contrast, it is almost incomprehensible that both sides of government continue to hold a mandatory detention framework. Financially, mandatory detention is a disaster. We know it's a disaster for the health and welfare of asylum seekers, but from a fiscal responsibility perspective, mandatory detention, which at this stage is looking long-term, um, despite the detention values that were announced by the Minister for Immigration in 2008. Detention is indefensible when compared to the cost of community care models. So why are we doing it? Well, as I said, despite the new directions detention in detention policy announced by the Minister for Immigration, people are spending longer in detention than these values were ever meant to reflect. And I think the change in arrival rates um, was ever meant to reflect. And in many, in many ways, we must question whether these values remain relevant two years later, as we see more people in detention for longer periods of time. So if we can at all put politics and a bipartisan commitment to mandatory detention aside, the answer in many ways is about security. The focus lies on the potential risk to Australia by those who have arrived uh, without a valid visa. Those seeking asylum after arriving by plane, so those community-based asylum seekers I talked about, had a valid visa, so therefore had gone through the relevant security checks um, as required in seeking a visa to travel. Those arriving by boat have not, and so thus the current policy is that those people must remain a security threat until proven otherwise with a security clearance. In many ways, it could be argued that this is a reasonable approach. Australia has a right to mitigate security concerns in unauthorised arrivals. However, in practice, the system is not working. Security clearances are taking extended periods of time to complete. Um, moreover, at some points in the protection application process at the moment, Security checks are suspended, uh, thus delaying the outcome of the final security clearance. More significantly, the number of adverse security checks is minimal compared to those who pose no threat to Australia. In 2002, Malcolm Fraser famously pointed out that terrorists come by plane, first class, with papers well prepared, not on leaky boats. 
In fact, in the year 2000, 11 of more than 13,000 people who sought asylum in Australia were rejected on character grounds. Only one was regarded as a security risk and he came by plane. Now the statistics today are admittedly um, different and a little higher. Not surprisingly, it's difficult to obtain clear statistics on adverse security assessments. It's highly confidential. And, but we do know that there have been a number um, that have had adverse security assessments. And of course we saw this in some of the debate around those who've been rejected um, from the Oceanic Viking episode. However, two key parts um, or issues within this concern me greatly. The first is that the approach of punishing the many due to the actions of a few is flawed when we consider the consequences of holding um, more than 4,000 people in detention for long periods of time and often in remote, remote locations. In lots of ways, and I am being simplistic, it's a little like holding the entire school in over lunchtime because a couple of kids perhaps in grade one or perhaps grade four or perhaps grade six mucked up in the morning. As a parent, I would certainly be marching down to the school and asking them why they don't have a comprehensive plan on dealing with problem behaviour in individuals. I do acknowledge that this is a little bit of a trite example given the seriousness of security concerns for Australia, but it's not one without merit. Why do we not have a comprehensive plan for dealing with potential, uh, with the potential for adverse security assessments, while allowing the many who statistically pose no threat to Australia to live in the community to wait, await an outcome of their protection application uh, or humanitarian intervention claims? The UK does it, Canada does it, Sweden does it, many other European countries do it too. So what is it about Australia that we're unable to implement a plan that could see most asylum seekers living in the community during the processing of their claims at a far cheaper rate with far better health and welfare outcomes? We know that voluntary return has a higher success rate and remember that's that 50% figure that will need to go home. We know that voluntary return has a higher success rate when, from a community setting than it does from a detention environment. And we also know that the length of time in detention is directly correlated, sorry, the demise of mental health is directly correlated to the length of time in detention. The current bipartisan approach to mandatory detention for lengthy periods does not make sense on a multitude of levels. What I suspect does make more sense to both sides of po politics is the fear of what they call the pull factor. That is the argument that if you make it more comfortable and easier for asylum seekers, they will come in greater numbers. It's the argument that's pushing the current debate to shift to offshore processing and to talk about the reintroduction of temporary protection visas, among other things. The logic follows that if you either make it so undesirable um, to be processed in Australia, or you take Australia out of the picture entirely, um, then the so-called benefits of being processed here, then the incentive is removed for people to come or to try and seek protection in Australia. And this leads to um, a lot of the conversation that we're seeing now about offshore processing or what's being called the regional protection framework. And you might have heard, of course, of... Uh, 
the um, suggestion of the possibility of offshore processing in East Timor, although uh, there's less conversation about that recently, but certainly the conversation about the possibility of processing in Nauru if the opposition forms government. I'm conscious that there are others with greater expertise to talk about the um, legislative uh, framework of uh, regional processing, but I think it's important to say a couple of words. In March 2010, the Minister for Immigration, Senator Chris Evans, gave an address at the Sydney Institute in New South Wales. In his speech, he acknowledged the complexities of irregular um, movement of people or irregular migration. In fact, it's Mr Evans who said on numerous occasions, if you've got a simple answer to what's going on, then you don't understand the problem. Uh, there are many complexities, and he's right. The Minister in his speech outlined a range of historical and possible future approaches to engaging our region and addressing irregular migration. The Bali process, um, which has been ongoing, relevant regional cooperation agreements, um, work with UNHCR on their 10-point plan, um, diplomatic efforts with individual countries, and stressed the need for multilateral and bilateral agreements to build cooperation and trust in the region. Now, it's rather unfortunate that none of this was incorporated in the announcements um, by Prime Minister Gillard about regional solutions. Instead, we heard about the possibility of one processing centre in a very poor country called East Timor. Effectively, the Prime Minister announced um, one very small part of what might make up a regional protection framework and engaging other countries in the region um, to assist with irregular migration. The same, um, uh, sorry, in isolation, um, a processing centre in East Timor is really no better than uh, a processing centre in Nauru. The same challenge, uh, challenges apply, and the fact that East Timor, as was talked about as a signatory country to the Refugee Convention, uh, means little in the practical challenges of poverty, uh, of warehousing refugees, and of shifting Australia's burden onto the very poor countries of our region. As David Mann, who's the coordinator of the Refugee and Immigration Legal Centre, said recently in a meeting to the Minister for Immigration, well, PNG is also a signatory country to the Refugee Convention, but that doesn't make it a safe or desirable place to set up a, a protection processing centre. While most of the 34 million people who are of concern to the UNHCR are hosted by poorer countries, this is largely due to the geographic proximity to countries of conflict. For example, Pakistan, Syria and Iran, who host the largest number of refugees. It would seem unethical, I believe, for Australia to intentionally re-divert asylum seekers or divert asylum seekers to a poorer nation for the purposes of avoiding the expenditure and the political debate that ensues when <coughs> asylum seekers arrive. Furthermore, a regional framework is far more complex than one offshore processing site. A framework will take years to establish and more years to consolidate, and it cannot be done unilaterally. If ever we needed a bipartisan agreement on anything, it would be basic principles for negotiating and establishing an effective and sustainable regional protection framework. It would be untenable to restrict ourselves to the opening and closing 
of processing centres such as Nauru or East Timor, depending on who wins the next election. It is untenable to expect that this would adequately address the many challenges associated with protection and irregular migration. Furthermore, in any of these discussions, there's a stark absence of the reality that it's highly unlikely there would be enough settlement places in the region or internationally to settle all protection claimants in the region. Currently, Australia and New Zealand are the only countries with an offshore settlement quota and uh, the numbers that we take and that New Zealand take uh, are extremely limited and cover mere hundreds as opposed to the potential of thousands who may receive refugee um, uh, recognition by the UNHCR in the region. According to the UNHCR, less than 1% of the world's refugees may be resettled in any one year. There are just not enough resettlement places. This is how we end up, ended up with a number of people languishing in Nauru towards the end of the Howard government. With no settlement places available in the region or beyond, and with Australia refusing to resettle the people who were languishing there, um, they remained until the government changed and the Rudd government came into power and accepted them all uh, into settlement into Australia and closed Nauru. There are a range of other questions that must be addressed when looking at a regional protection framework. It is complex. Um, and recently the Refugee Council of Australia put together a joint statement by Australian government, um, sorry, Australian non-government, uh, organisations in relation to a regional protection framework, and which the whole Commission of Violence Project did sign, uh, also the Uniting Church, and uh, I'm not sure if any of the other major religious networks did, but it might be worth having a look. But it's well worth looking at for some basic principles and standards if you're interested in following the debate around a regional protection framework and a number of the elements that should remain in place, uh, hopefully uh, with agreement from both sides of politics. I want to move now into telling you a bit about what this Island Seeker project does and um, the report and the research that we've done and some of the ideas that we've had uh, for trying to uh, be placed within a debate around positive and constructive change. Uh, in many ways, it might be odd for me as the Director of the Health Commission Asylum Seeker Project to talk about um, uh, detention environments and uh, regional uh, protection frameworks because our clients uh, uh, solely or exclusively uh, come by plane and seek protection in Australia. Uh, if you've come by boat, uh, you're going to detention and generally you won't get out of detention until you've either got a visa and then you'll go into settlement services or you return home uh, from a detention environment. Our work is, um, as I said, predominantly focused on um, asylum seekers living in the community who've arrived by plane and applied for protection but who have no form of income or safe and secure housing. If you've got any way of supporting yourself with an income or being able to live safely with someone else, we won't take you. You need to be destitute or homeless to come onto our program. As Bruce mentioned, uh, we are very fortunate to have a number of houses donated to us um, from religious communities and private donors that we can then use to house asylum seekers with no form of income. 
Uh, we then use uh, the money that, that we are able to raise um, to provide intensive case management for asylum seekers living in the community and a range of other uh, social and uh, material aid supports. Within the context of what we do, almost two years ago we started a conversation with the ANZ trustees. And it was at the time, uh, as has been the case, as I mentioned, uh, most asylum seekers were arriving by plane. And that's the consistent arrival uh, where people come by plane and apply for protection. As I mentioned, over history there are waves of arrivals that come by boat and generally reflected uh, by conflict in the region or movement in the region that you can generally track from countries. So at the moment we have that arrival from Afghanistan and Sri Lanka and it's not hard to see what's happening in those countries. So as a result of that conversation with the ANZ trustees, we were talking about at the time what were the most pressing issues for the sector or the most emerging issues for the sector in terms of needing some work done. Clearly at the time housing was not being discussed. Um, discussions around alternatives to detention had demised because the numbers of people in detention had also demised. So the focus became on housing for, for asylum seekers in the community. Now what we see is the, the conversation about alternatives to detention uh, arise again as we see over 4,000 people uh, in the detention environment. So we put together a proposal that looked at um, uh, investigating within Australia models for asylum housing, knowing uh, from our anecdotal experience that there wasn't any uh, because there's no funding for it. Um, and indeed, uh, we, we consulted nationally uh, with asylum-specific agencies to find out what, what kind of support um, was in Australia. Um, as we confirmed, uh, there's very limited uh, housing support, purely, as I said, because there is no financial stream to be able to um, provide that. So we then went to the UK, Sweden and Canada to look at their models of housing provision. And each one of those countries do have a model of community-based processing for asylum seekers using limited forms of detention um, uh, environments uh, for people with a potential security risk. Um, all three countries predominantly process asylum seekers in the community, as I said. All three countries receive far higher numbers than Australia per capita, and all three countries not only provide community-based housing and support, but have legislated minimum standards of care for this group. Before I go on, I don't want to suggest that these countries have the perfect system. There are complexities with low rates of voluntary return, high rates of absconding um, or overstaying visas, and a challenging political landscape in relation to asylum seekers. And all of these issues do need to be addressed when you look at community care options and the discussion about how to make it work. Um, but in many ways, having said that, I was really impressed at how well Australia compares on a community-based compliance model, which basically means how we manage people in the community to return or to settle um, in comparison to some of the countries we visited. However, comparative to Australia, all three countries were managing asylum seekers in the community without the need for mandatory detention or the inflated costs associated with it. Time and time again, staff of the relevant service providers or government migration agencies 
were perplexed at the, our description of destitution and homelessness for community-based asylum seekers and the policy of mandatory detention that we have for unauthorised arrivals. I have to say I was just as perplexed as we investigated models of community care that Australia is simply not across or not even investigating. One uh, United Kingdom um, border agency official who we were interviewing um, in a reasonably senior role, when I asked him as part of the research why the UK BA um, or why the UK provides supported housing in the community to asylum seekers, he looked at me quizzically and said, it's a human rights issue. I said, oh yes, I, I see. Um, right, we don't talk about that much in Australia. Um, and, uh, and then he said, besides, we couldn't possibly afford to detain them all. For me, this was one of the starkest comments of our international consultation. Um, I believe that Australia, too, can no longer afford to detain them all, neither financially or morally. While our research focused on the delivery of housing to asylum seekers living in the community, there's no question that the model that we've developed, or at least a slightly amended one, um, could, it, it could certainly also have relevance uh, for alternatives to detention in the community with the political will. Just last night, as Bruce mentioned, the research was launched by Judge Felicity Hampel, alongside an address from Lindsay Tanner, who uh, is the member for Melbourne and uh, retiring, but uh, also the Minister for Finance and Deregulation, and George Lakakis, who's chair of the Victorian Multicultural Commission. And it was a great event. The research is, as I've already um, indicated, it's structured in four parts. So the national consultations, as I mentioned, <coughs> the international consultations, then what we did is, based on those consultations, we looked at what a model for Australia, um, how it could work, specific to Australia. Um, then we engaged an independent economist to come and cost it. We knew that the government would be very interested in that last part of the research. And of course, the research um, demonstrates that subsidised housing in the community is cost effective at $12 per day um, per person in a shared accommodation environment or $31 per person per day in a single housing compared to uh, detention costs, as I mentioned earlier, um, it's far cheaper in terms of the impact on health and welfare and the potential for voluntary return for asylum seekers in the community, it's far better. We were very conscious of the overstretched housing market or housing stock of public housing in Australia at the moment. We knew it was, would be unrealistic to suggest that that stock be stretched even further for asylum seekers. So we had to come up with a model that brought new money and new houses into the picture. So not unlike the model that Hoffer Mission Asylum Seeker Project works with, we turned to the religious um, community sector and the non-government um, sector to suggest that amongst those groups we could find additional properties that the Department of Immigration could lease and that we could implement a comprehensive uh, ha supported housing model for either asylum seekers in the community, which is certainly the focus of the research, or as I've suggested, potentially 
for people in detention who have multiple vulnerabilities, who may need a community care environment. So, in many ways, whilst the research has been done and looks like a great model, it's only just the beginning. We now need to find ways to make it work. So after the election, we're going to be announcing a new campaign called the 100 Houses Challenge. The research looks at a pilot program, understanding that we'd need to implement small, evaluate, and then look at how it might be implemented across Australia. We've suggested 100 houses in Victoria um, for the first part of, for the pilot exercise. So um, by December of this year, we're hoping to find 100 houses in Victoria that can be pledged um, uh, to go to government, and not only with the research, but with the 100 houses pledge to say to government, not only can this work, but we can help you make it work. And we're going to need broad community support um, to be able to achieve that. Um, and of course, uh, very much looking for a rental return uh, for those who pledge their house. And uh, our current donors will be more than delighted uh, if that could occur. It would seem more, now more than ever, as we wait for an election in nine days, that the community must engage uh, in seeking solutions as well as raising our voices for change if we want to see improvement in the human rights context for, both, for asylum seekers, both on their shores and away from them. That is both, in many ways, our challenge but our responsibility. Thank you.